Hello and welcome to the Movement Disorder Podcast. In this series, we'll be exploring the finer side of things with some of the great minds of movement disorders. We will get to hear interesting information and history to understand how we got to be here. We'll explore the approach to diagnosis and management, the things that your books would not tell you. And most importantly, get tips and tricks that will get you a step ahead in the game. All right. Hello and welcome to the Movement Disorder Podcast. Today we're doing an innovative podcast where we will blend in a lecture on Tourette Syndrome along with a podcast with a question submitted to me from the course participant in a Movement Disorder Online course from Pakistan. So I will go through the slides as I mentioned before and wherever the questions come up, I will ask the audience presence the questions. Let me introduce who is present with us today. Uh, I have uh, Professor John Bertoni, MD, PhD, who is a professor of uh, neurology and has been doing Parkinson's disease for over 20 years, but uh, is an expert in all different movement disorders. We have Dr. Amy Hellman, who is the director of Huntington's Disease Center of Excellence uh, and an assistant professor in the Department of Neurology at UNMC. We have Dr. Mara Sayer, who is an assistant professor, just joined us from University of Oregon. And we have Reagan Iski, who is a case manager. He manages all our movement disorder cases. Uh, and we have our movement disorder fellows, uh, Dr. James Shu, who is a second year fellow in movement disorders, and Dr. David Whitney, who is a first year movement disorder fellow. Uh, very good. You can, you can all say hello to everyone. Hi. Hello. 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 <laughs> all right. So I'm going to start with the lecture here. So we're talking about tics, disorders, and main focus on Tourette syndrome. And uh, I am Danish Bahati. I'm an assistant professor in uh, uh, Department of Neurological Sciences here. Uh, we will try to review the clinical diagnosis of tic disorders in Tourette syndrome and describe the phenomenology and pathophysiology of various tics, and identify tics from stereotypies and dystonia, and review behavioral and pharmacological treatments in patients with tics and Tourette syndrome. How common are tics? Uh, they are affecting nearly 4% of population under age 17. Uh, the, uh, most kids grow out of tics, so the incidence falls significantly after that age. And it may be even higher at younger age. So in, in, a, in a second grade or a third grade uh, classroom, there may be as many as 20 to 25% kids with tics. And compared with restless leg syndrome, which is 10% but compared to Parkinson's disease, which is 1% after age 60. All right, so let's uh, start with the definition of a tick. Tick is any brief movement or sound that occurs intermittently and unpredictably in a non-rhythmic fashion out of normal motor activity. Although ticks can appear as the result of a direct brain injury, they most commonly are idiopathic and part of the spectrum of Gilles de la Tourette syndrome. So they can be of any type or variety, and I, we will look at that later on. What characterizes a tick is that it's stereotyped, meaning that it's the same movement occurring every time uh, repetitively. It is involuntary or semi-voluntary movement, and can be a motor movement or could be a sound or vocal tick. Uh, a motor movement, if it produces sound, and it's the sound which is the main characteristic of the relieving factor for the movement, then we will still call it a phonic tick or a vocal tick. So 
Uh, it could be snapping the fingers. If the sound uh, that you hear from snapping the finger is the one that relieves anxiety, it will be called a phonic tick and not a motor tick, not a vocal tick. It's usually simple and coordinated movement, but can be very complex. It could be a series of sequential movement, gestures, utterances that mimic fragments of normal behavior. And most individuals would take describe a premonitory urge or sensation, a feeling of tension within a muscle or something that makes them do that movement. And that urge or sensation is relieved after performing that particular movement. Very good. So here are some questions submitted to the characteristic of a tick disorder. So this is a question from Dr. Soheb Anwar. He's asking, how do you differentiate between ticks and parakinesias? Because these are also coming out of voluntary motor actions. Faculty? I think the main differentiation there is, well, there's kind of two things, but the, the main thing is the urge or that uncomfortable sensation that is not present in parakinesia. Parakinesia is trying to blend in an involuntary movement that that has no preceding urge is not suppressible um, so I guess that that includes the other parts <laughs> um, versus a tick which is a movement of some sort that is required to relieve the sensation so the movement is voluntary but the sensation is involuntary um, and the perikinesia it's a voluntary movement added on to an involuntary movement okay Dr. B, do you have anything to add? Well, just along those lines, if somebody has a perikinesia, um, they don't feel better by letting it happen. Mm -hmm. There's no major urge to do so. And it doesn't really bother them, maybe bothers other people. Uh, so, so what I want to say is, you know, the ticks are said to be stereotyped, but they do vary. You may have one form of tick, and then a month later, you may have a different tick that is your latest thing. Um, and there have been cases where two people are sitting outside the neurologist's office with different ticks, and by the time they leave, they have each other's ticks. Hmm. So they start imitating the other one in a you know, hmm. kind of an odd way. So it, <coughs> they, they tend to be. Yeah, I think the, the 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 what we were trying to convey there was that a particular movement for it to be tick has to be exactly the same to relieve the tension. So it cannot be that you halfway, if you do the movement or some form of that movement, you feel better. Uh, that is not exactly a tick, which actually leads me to the next question. Uh, again, from Dr. Soheb Anwar, is that how then you differentiate a genuine tick from someone who is malingering or faking ticks? And that's where I think that point is relevant, is right. that someone who is appears to be making a tick may not do the movement exactly the same. And if the movement is not precisely the same, if any kind of a movement of the neck will make them feel relieved, uh, and it's varying from movement to movement, then it may not actually be a real take. Do you have any other pointers or clues that you guys use to differentiate a faker or a malinger who may not actually have a take? Ticks can also be suppressible uh -huh. and suggestible uh -huh. and distractible, though. So it does make it But I think I think suppressibility actually is useful. Many malingerers actually show as if it is not suppressible. So I have actually seen that, you know, someone who was making a tick, and I say, okay, can you hold it? And say, no, I cannot hold it. It's like, well, then it cannot be a tick. Tick should be suppressible. Mm -hmm. That's true. Very good. So the other question related to the same question in terms of tick is a question about stereotypies and mannerisms. 
how do you differentiate them from the tech? And it's been asked from many of the participants here, Dr. Muslim Lakhir, Dr. Farheen Yazi, Sabah Zaidi, Kiran Qureshi, all asking the same question is that, how do you differentiate studio-RTP mannerism, kind of a leg movement or shaking some people have from a tick? Dr. B? Well, a leg movement, like leg bouncing, is not, so, I mean, that's something that you can stop if you ask them to. There's no urge to keep doing it. Um, I think mannerisms, if you have a professor, when he's out of the room, or you think he is, you can imitate him by the way he fidgets with his glasses. These are, you know, just mannerisms, not tics. But I think there's people that just blend into both of them. I think some mannerisms in people are tics, especially if you have more of them as a kid. Like throat clearing, you know, makes right. it almost considered a mannerism, but it might actually be a tic. What do you guys think? Where, how, what, how would you differentiate? It's too yard to be. I think it goes back to what Dr. Hellman said is the urge, because there's no urge behind stereotypy. And typically, I mean, you often see them in people who are developmentally delayed yeah. or um, have some intellectual disability. And so there's really not the urge behind the movement, and it's repetitive and um, looks very consistent where kind of ticks can can change. I think that's a very good point, especially uh, I was thinking about this, that stereotypies, uh, although they can be anything, but actually they do have some specific patterns. So there's a hand-wringing stereotypy of the uh, autism and Rett syndrome. Uh, Down syndrome patients have this kind of a shaking of their body, mm -hmm. uh, rocking in the chair of stereotypy. Mm -hmm. Uh, tardive stereotypy is an orolingual buckle, and they always follow that pattern. So although they are repetitively the same, the knots are very suppressible. They don't have an urge or relief of urge from it. And they typically have a very known set pattern association. Do the tick persist in sleep? Well, we usually think not, but I mean, there may be some things that occur. So there's many, you know, myoclonic movement are typical in sleep in normal people. Have you guys heard of any case where ticks persist in sleep? I wouldn't think yeah. so. No, I, I think, think uh, question, Dr. Torres <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. had this uh, kid who was probably had tardive ticks, and I think he was juvenile HD, and he used to have, when he appears to be falling asleep, still ongoing ticks. And I think Dr. Torres has said something about stage one sleep may have some overlap where awake movements can continue in stage one sleep, mm -hmm. but beyond stage one sleep, these movements should disappear. Good. There's, a, there's, there's a common thing seen in early sleep, hypnic jerks, where just before you're falling asleep or just as you are, there's a, a, a movement of the whole body or maybe one side or one limb. Yeah. And those are thought to be normal. And, Not ticks. But I can't imagine that if the tick is something that's suppressible and involuntary or semi-voluntary, I don't think you can do that in your sleep. It'd be interesting to do a study with people with REM behavior disorder, though. All right. What's your take, fellows, from all this discussion? When would you call a tick a tick? Well, first of all, the you look at it, you describe it, and you agree that it is it is repetitive, it is stereotyped, and it, it has the urge. They, you ask them, do they have the urge or not? Maybe they won't say, oh yes, I have an urge, but then you have to tease it out. Um, um, there might be a family history associated with it, um, sometimes very strongly, in fact. Um, 
but uh, that would be that would be one of the the biggest characteristics. Do you have anything to add, Tad, Doctor Whitney? Uh, not really beyond what's been talked about already. <laughs> to be honest with you. All right. So yeah, let's explore this a little more in terms of differential. So we think about motor takes as simple motor or complex motor takes. Complex motor takes are usually sequential pattern of individual takes or more complex movement could almost look like normal behaviors. Uh, and those are the ones who often end up being with a psychiatrist. And they can have uh, head shaking, tr truncal bending or gyrating, brushing hair, touching, throwing, hitting, jumping, kicking, running around. I think I have a video from Dr. Torres' patient and kids just runs around and that's her take. She's jumping and running, but in a very stereotype fashion. Uh, obscene gestures and uh, imitating other gestures. While simple motor tics could be either clonic, dystonic, and tonic. And actually, that's an important question, how to differentiate a dystonic trick from dystonia, a myoclonic trick from a myoclonus. And let's look at that a little more later on. Phonic tic simply can be a simple phonic tic, such as sniffing, throat clearing, grunting, squeaking, and complex tics such as equilalia, pallilalia, or coprolalia. So here's a question about these uh, coprolalia and pallilalia phenomena. <coughs> if a child, this is from Dr. Soheb Anwar, if a child has mild phonic and motor tics with coprolalia and coproparexia, and we educate the patient that you know, these are tics, doesn't have to be treated, they will go away, will those abnormal obscene gestures and wordings go away or become a behavioral component of patients or a child as he goes up? Would he always be cursing as he go, grows up? Will he, will the child, if not treated, will always continue to have that abnormal, obscene behavior or gesture? I would start with saying that to say somebody has mild coprolalia or copopraxia, I think is um, a paradoxical sort of thing because, misnomer. yeah, <laughs> misnomer. Because uh, coprolalia and copopraxia, even if it's, quiet or something, it still is going to have an impact on a child's life. So I think that that warrants treatment in mm -hmm. most cases. Okay. Um, that being said, in general, any sort of tics um, most often go away as people get older at some point in their life. It's different at what point in time, mm -hmm. um, but they almost always go away. I don't think that having a tick is going to predispose you to um, any any type of tick is going to predispose you to those sorts of behaviors later on. It would be a conscious choice if somebody decides to keep up that behavior once the the tick has once they've grown out of the tick, basically. Cool. Anybody else have anything to add? I think that if you are getting better as you get older and you're having fewer of these impulses and fewer of these tics, that if you're under duress, it may get worse. Mm. And I think there's a gray zone where you're eventually going to do less and less of this. Um, I don't know about where you went to school, but when I went to high school in Detroit, half the kids in my freshman class were, f were flipping the bird or making obscene gestures and it was very, very common, and they sort of outgrew it, but, I mean, Hopefully. I don't think they all had <laughs> Well, I mean, it wasn't so much um, what they said, it was what they were doing. Mm. Uh, I learned a lot in my freshman year. I was a kid from a small village when I went to Detroit, so. All right. 
So uh, premonitory sensation, here's one study that looked at type of uh, premonition or urge phenomena. So urge to move, which is a general vague kind of a movement, almost like an ecathetic kind of an urge sensation, was the most common, present in 89% of the uh, population. Uh, so 41 out of total of 46. Impulse to tick, the had to do it, was another common description. Increased tension, another common description of 60%. Anxiety, restlessness, 60%. Urge to apply pressure, 50%. And urge to stretch, just right thing to do, aching, itching, tingling, numbness, coolness, and others. And all these different forms have been described. Um, coming back to that differential diagnosis. So differentiating a myoclonic trick from myoclonus, dystonic trick from a dystonia. Let me ask you the questions from some of the participants. So Dr. Sedrar Khaled asked, how would we differentiate Tourette syndrome from other movement disorder in our clinic, specifically from dystonia, myoclonus, as many patients in our clinic don't give a clear-cut history of internal tension or anxiety associated with the tick? I think it's a, it's a combination of the, the features that we talked about before, so suppressibility mm -hmm. with rebound. And a lot of times you really have to tease out people might not be aware of the sensation because they don't suppress their tics or mm. they, they aren't necessarily always aware of their ability to suppress them because especially if they're fairly mild because they just do them. Um, but if you really push them, you can find at least some component of these things that will help to differentiate from them. And then also the stereotyped nature is also very um, mm important to, to differentiate from some other movement disorders that are not stereotyped. I think part of this may be cultural. It may be typical in some cultures not to mention embarrassing aspects of movement disorders mm. so that it may or may not be suppressible. You don't believe it is. It's out of your control. And um, I think it depends on the individual. I'm guessing there may be people in Pakistan, less likely to admit that, um, I don't know, that it's something that they can control. Or maybe they're just not aware of it. Cool. So similar questions have been asked by uh, other participants like Dr. Muslim Lakhiar, that how do you differentiate dystonic from dystonia, myoclonic from myoclonus? And I think the features like suppressibility is very useful. Our dystonia should not be suppressible, while our dystonic tick would be. Uh, and uh, repetitive nature, stereotypy will be important. Dystonic patient may have multiple different forms of dystonia or positions to cause dystonia uh, while it may not be seen in a dystonic tick. So one question from Dr. Sarah Hassan is that, are hiccups diaphragmatic ticks? They're a form of myoclonus. Yeah. Yeah, that's how we usually classify them. Yeah. So they're not usually... They're suppressible. So if somebody's having a single, yeah. hold your breath, hold your breath, think uh -huh. of something else, and you try to distract them, right? How do you get rid of sometimes, hiccups? Sometimes, but sometimes not. A minor <laughs> often <laughs> not suppressible, <laughs> although I try. Yeah. <laughs> and, there's, and there's also no urge. In fact, it's quite mm -hmm. the opposite. It's usually very uncomfortable to have the hiccup rather than relieving some sort of sensation. I think just to ask a different question, how about a cough? If you are in an audience, you're, there's a live mic, and they're recording the symphony, and those people, knowing that, don't cough so much. Mm. But if you're ever at one of these concerts, sometimes people cough, and there is a relief from coughing. There's an urge. Mm. But I don't, 
Now, I think hiccups we generally think of as myoclonus. It either comes and goes. It's not something that you feel better when you do it, I don't think at all. But a cough is something different. But it does relieve something. Yeah, but a cough is more like a goal-directed behavior, whereas ticks don't really, other than relieving the symptoms, are not really goal-directed anywhere. Well, how about breathing? I mean, you can go through so many things that are semi-automatic. I mean, there's a, after a while you want to breathe, and the more you hold your breath, the more you want to breathe. All right, moving on <laughs> in just of time. We, I'm sure we can debate it for the rest of the day. So let's look at some of the etiological causes of the ticks. Uh, we know Tourette syndrome is by far the most common cause, but there are many secondary causes of tick disorder. So secondary will be when there is an identifiable condition or disease that could be causing the tick phenomena. So we have neurodegenerative disease like Wilson's disease, neurocanthocytosis, iron accumulations and Huntington's, frontal lesions from trauma, stroke, infections and immune causes, and drugs such as neuroleptic can cause tardive ticks in addition to treating ticks, and anti-epileptics and cocaine and stimulants can cause tick disorder. Um, one of the questions raised from a pediatric neurologist who is part of this course, Dr. Ahmed Virk, is what are the metabolic disorders which present with ticks and so that the presence of tick may help me toward diagnosing such complex metabolic disorders better. Any known associations? This then, unfortunately, none of us is a pediatric neurologist and we hate metabolic disorders. <laughs> anything that comes in mind? Well, there are all sorts of things with strep infections. Yeah. I mean, there are some associations, but... I think yeah. uh, I in urea cycle disorders, I don't... There's dystonias and Parkinson-related so problem reported, but not ticks. Um, phospholipid storage syndromes, again, ataxias and myoclonus are common. I don't think ticks as, as such are known to link with any specific metabolic syndrome. Yeah, I don't think that they're sensitive enough or specific enough to narrow down diagnosis. Diagnosis. Mm. And particularly in children who have a higher likelihood of having tics unrelated to any underlying disorder as well. Cool. Well, so one thing I'd just like to add, I mean, it's we should be able to distinguish it, but asterixis is sometimes misdiagnosed. It's seen in metabolic disorders of many types. And it looks like a myoclonus, but it's a relaxation. And once you really identify what's happening, um, you should be able to distinguish that. But I don't think you see too many ticks with those same disorders. So the Tourette syndrome uh, is uh, given a diagnosis given with a specific criteria, which is almost uh, somehow arbitrary, but it's the current standard guideline. It has to be uh, both at least one motor and one vocal tick, but it can be more than one. And it has to be going on intermittently for a period of more than one year, and it has to start before the age 18. So if these three features are present, then you give a diagnosis of Tourette syndrome. But And the fourth or fifth feature that we sometimes use is the family history, presence of ADHD, OCD, or other ticks in the family. Uh, to call it a Tourette family, as we know, it runs in the family a lot more. Uh, ticks can also, if none of these features are being fulfilled or some of these are not being fulfilled, the other diagnosis that we label, and uh, that may be a temporary diagnosis, will be a chronic motor tick disorder, a chronic vocal tick disorder, transient tick disorder, acute tick disorder, tick disorder not otherwise specified if those features are not present, but most are uh, more of a diagnostic classification. Importantly, 
We know that uh, ticks uh, in Tourette syndrome patient are not the only problems. Tourette syndrome also have ADHD and OCD and other behavioral problems that overlap, meaning that some people can have both ticks and ADHD or both ticks and OCD or all three of them uh, present. And then some family members may only have ADHD or OCD, not ticks uh, present. Um, the ticks and Tourette syndrome uh, a, a patient ticks start before age 18, but most common starting age is around four to five years of age. Uh, ADHD starts around the same time, but OCD can start much later, more closer to 10 years of age. Behavioral symptoms in ADHD, uh, beyond ADHD could be uh, inability to pay attention, kind of a mild ADD syndrome or self-injurious behaviors, although that's debatable. And uh, which leads me to the phenomena of coprolalia and coproporexia. Uh, this is a study from 558 new cases of Tourette syndrome from 15 sites in seven countries. Coprolalia occurred at some point in nearly 19% of male and 14.6% females, while coproporexia in 6% males and 5% of females. Mean onset was age 11 and 10 for coprolalia and coproporexia respectively. And uh, mean onset five years uh, uh, of uh, after ticks onset, and 11% uh, of these patients who had coprolalia coproporexia, all these 20% uh, had initial symptom of Tourette syndrome being coprolalia, so they can even be presenting with screaming and yelling. So the, the one question from Dr. Suhaib Anwar is that is it possible for adults to have new onset coprolalia and coproporexia with tick disorder? So he's always in children. If you get a patient, 32 year old, may have had remorse of tech, never treated, and is actually being referred now because he's yelling obscenities on everyone, on his co-workers. Not me, I'm not 32. Uh, <laughs> would that be a Tourette syndrome related phenomenon? Or is it psychogenic? Is it tardive? Well, starting at what age? 32. Well, no, it's got to be before 18. You just said that. No, he had ticks for before oh, 18. Oh, he had, but, okay. But corporal right. now starting. Okay. I've seen people with head traumas that have coprolalia, for sure. But I think it was an attention-getting mechanism. If they couldn't get anybody to pay attention, that was one way to do it. Um, but I don't, I haven't seen many of those cases. How about you guys? I haven't seen it personally, but I, it's, I think it's possible. Um, like like any other tick, you'd have to tease out whether it was truly an involuntary tick. So I have a 70-something-year-old gentleman with ticks, and he had them all of his life, and he yells and screams. His vocal ticks are very loud. He actually yells obscenity uh, every once in a while, especially when the ticks are more acting up. And uh, he had an adult onset of tick disorder, and he had adult onset coprolalia. I, one of you guys might actually have seen that guy. We I see him for Parkinsonism. He's not with Parkinson's disease, but he actually has ticks. And you can you can hear him when he's in the room because he's yelling. Uh, most of the time it's just sound, but he can also. Okay, wait. So wh how old was he when this came out? Probably in his fifties, uh, forties or fifties. And did he have brain damage? Was no, this related no. to anything else? No identifiable cause for this. That's and it's not a Tourette family. You know, nobody else in family has ticks. Does he yeah, have other my my best guess is tardive, but I you know he has history of depression and treated with all different kind of medications, but I cannot confirm it. So I think he has tardive ticks okay. and he has late age onset uh, coprolalia. One case personal. Cool. Yeah, it sure feels possible, but I. 
I would caution that if you have a 32-year-old who's cursing at their coworkers, ticks is probably not your first thought. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Good point. So there is this another concept in Tourette syndrome called malignant Tourette syndrome where you are having such bad ticks as causing injuries. So in 332 cases in one study uh, from Dr. Jankovic, there was about 17 or 5% who met the criteria for malignant Tourette syndrome. And the injuries reported include throat swelling, vocal cord injury, shoulder and other dislocations, spinal cord compression, and self-inflicted injuries like self-stabbing, oral wounds from biting the lips, cuts and lacerations, and wound picking. So here's a picture of the spinal cord compression for dystonic neck tick from that paper. And here are the lip biting and throat cutting and abdominal cutting and evisceration tick disorder. Um, so the questions I have related to this is that how do you differentiate between malignant Tourette syndrome from psychiatric disorders like depression with the self-injurious behaviors? This is from Dr. Kiran Qureshi. Well, again, you have to go, go back to that phenomenon, <coughs> the, those key features of, of tics, that there's some sort of uncomfortable sensation, um, that it's uh, stereotypic, that there's it's suppressible with rebound. Um, and then, of course, you have to ask about mood and those sorts of things, too. So it's really getting down to the bottom of what is the reason for the injury. Are you trying to hurt yourself? Are you depressed? Are you suicidal? Or can you not help? Can you only suppress the movements for that for so long? I, I, you know, it hits on that uncomfortable spot that I have had about this. And I think Dr. Torres has hinted at times that many of these patients who are reported with these kind of self-injurious behaviors were actually being treated with antipsychotics high doses. Mm -hmm. Are these tardive phenomena? Are they had underlying psychiatric disorder? Uh, it really becomes hard if somebody has this urge to see his gut spell spilled out and he's just having that urge all the time uh, and he has attempted it a few times, has no other motor or vocal tick. Would you call it a tick that he was having, or is it really an obsession? Is it a psychiatric uh, problem? And or sometimes some of the really complicated um, ticks can have this really strong overlay with the OCD. Hmm. Mm -hmm. There's also an urge yeah. for that to, to do some sort of behavior, and so I think that is a difficult def differentiation between ticks and maybe some OCD type behaviors. Also, having these disorders is pretty depressing, and these people can get depressive symptoms, and I guess I would say this is a psychosis of some sort for psychiatric uh, patients, but I think it would be very hard sometimes to, to distinguish, especially with the treatment that they've gotten. Most of the time, you don't know all the drugs they've taken. And also, there's probably some overlap or uh, comorbidity there that you want to make sure that you're treating the psychiatric component as well. So you okay, guys wanna... Cool. All right, so uh, in the interest of time, I'm gonna skip some of the genetic and pathophysiological part of the Tourette syndrome lecture. Um, we, we have some imaging studies supporting the concept of where the text may be coming from. The bottom line is that there is concern of basal ganglia involvement <coughs> in some way, shape, or form that uh, leads to the tick formation and that relates to the question asked by uh, some of the people here like Dr. Safia Banu asked what is the pathophysiology behind ticks and neurodegenerative disorders like Huntington's disease and I think it probably relates to the basal ganglia involvement and relief of basal ganglia suppression from for some reason and I will jump that 
Uh, I will also not talk a lot about genetics today. There are some questions related to genetics. For example, Dr. Farheen again asked, does consanguinity plays a role in Tourette syndrome? And if a child has Tourette syndrome, how much is the risk of Tourette syndrome in siblings? If concerned parents ask this question, what would you say to the child? You know, are the is the other sibling is going to have ticks in the next few years? Thoughts? What would you say? Um, from my understanding, the genetics have to do with risk factor, rather than you inherited gene and it's 100% that you are going to have Tourette syndrome. Exactly. So, you know, there have been so many genetic studies and so many reports of uh, linkages and association with certain genetic areas. And we did a study and reported a, a review on this. And uh, there are so many candidate locus, loci, but there is no candidate gene. And there has been no single gene identified that directly causes Tourette syndrome. And uh, there are so many of them that they're either all wrong or it, that it's not just one condition and so many different genes can increase the risk of developing Tourette syndrome, which might likely be the case just like Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's no direct gene that have been identified, but it is known that it runs more in the families. But again, there is no one gene or set of genes that explain it in every family. Each family have their own type of gene genetics uh, for this and so the risk for the sibling is not predictable it's high higher than the general population but how high is not predictable there is no uh, understanding uh, concept or model to explain that well just to put it more simply if you think there's no syndrome with ticks that are going to give 50 percent of the children that disorder uh -huh. then you can say it's less likely than not uh, I mean, they're they're mostly going to probably not have right. syndrome, but it's somewhere between zero and fifty percent. Right. But then there are you know well described autosomal recessive disorders mm -hmm. that happen in eight consecutive children out of eight yeah. just by chance. Right. So, but I think you can tell them that it's a little bit more likely, but we don't know how much. Exactly. So uh, in etiology, another question come up is pandas. So some people have asked. Um, when should we investigate secondary causes in ticks and how, how do we treat with immune suppression? How do we diagnose pandas? It's a very tricky uh, disorder. We know that uh, the, what we know about pandas is that basically it is another syndrome linked with the streptococcal sore throat infection. So it's a para-infectious or post-infectious phenomena, uh, we believe, and uh, it is similar to the Sydenham chorea, but rather than having chorea, this time you get ticks disorder and uh, it may or may not have any encephalitis associated with it. Beyond that, the details are murky. There are no good studies on it. And I think uh, rather than immune treatment, uh, probably treating the underlying infection might make more sense, just like the Sydenham chorea, but we don't know. There's a lot of controversies on it. Somebody has any other latest information behind us, please feel free to add. Otherwise, we'll drop it there and go on to other questions. So. Again, another question related to investigation, which I think is important, I haven't covered in my slides very well, is that how far would you investigate a patient who present with multiple ticks? And um, you know, would you screen for Wilson's disease, Huntington's, what would you treat, screen for? This is a question from Dr. Janae. How much workup would you do in a tick disorder, a kid or adult? In a kid, I would have 
not very high threshold for screening for a, a bunch of things, especially if there's like it's in the family and there's the other comorbids. Um, but adult onset. Adult onset more likely to be secondary, especially given that the diagnostic criteria less than 18 has to be the onset mm -hmm. for Tourette syndrome. But like you said, if the if it looks like Tourette syndrome, especially there is family history, there is ADHD, OCD in the family, probably doesn't need a lot of workup. But if there is not a lot of other supportive information that is Tourette, then the secondary tick disorders have to be ruled out, and that's where you become more aggressive with the workup. And then older the person is, I would probably be more aggressive with the Wilsons and uh, yeah. Huntington's probably not. Just having ticks itself, I wouldn't jump on Huntington's testing. Mm -hmm. Would you, Amy? No, I wouldn't. Not in, if it was just, I mean, part, something I tell my patients a lot is that part of the, you know, we're always putting together the clinical picture, and part of that picture is time. So if they have only ticks and otherwise completely normal neurologic exam, no other symptoms, I wouldn't go working up for Huntington's. I would follow them over time, and if they developed new um, neurologic symptoms, obviously I'm going to reassess my workup and get more aggressive. All right. And for what I've seen, I don't do much pediatric neurology these days, but the whole family is very upset when something like that, when a kid comes in and it, it's bothersome at school, it bothers the parents. There's, I think counseling is really crucial for these cases, and I think sometimes just settling people down and letting the kid outgrow it is the best. But I would agree, in general, the older the person is, the more the workup is needed. Cool. So that leads me into the treatment question. And uh, so this is the overview of treatment is that the biggest uh, factor in the first step of treatment is education and counseling. Uh, education about natural fluctuation of the disease, uh, it will come and go, worsening around holidays and stress location, you know, lack, you know, not need for treatment, outgrowing out of it, and things like that, ADHD and OCD. And then there are treatments that you can use, medications, cognitive behavioral therapy has been well established to be successful, as successful as any other medication in uh, tick disorder or Tourette syndrome, so it should be paid attention to. It's just unfortunately much involved and it requires resources to be offered. Uh, tick suppressing medications, we have alpha agonist, clonidine, guanifacine, antipsychotics, risperidone, abilify, haloperidol, femozide, and flufenazine, and other agents. Uh, and uh, there are some empirical support, especially for the older medication, and the, the later one has been studied less and less due to concern for long-term side effect. This one interesting study on flufenazine from Dr. Jankwick on 188 patients, so I guess they are using it quite heavily, and they found that uh, has marked to moderate improvement in 73% of patients, significant change in severity before and after, and most common adverse effects were drowsiness and weight gain, some akathisia, and no tardive dyskinesia, and of course it's hard to say if they had any tardive tick or not. So some questions related to treatment. Dr. Suhaib Anwar is asking, if someone experiences ticks only during periods of performance anxiety, stage fright, or certain parts or portions or holidays, uh, would you? what would be the best option in treatment or therapy? Would you treat anxiety? Would you put him on propranolol and see if this anxiety relief will stop the ticks? I think if it's in, in specific, I think those are, those are kind of two different things probably to me. If it's only like a performance anxiety, I would probably start with trying with propranolol and see if mm -hmm. you can prevent the anxiety if that does prevent the ticks. Um, if it's all issues, all times of stress, including the holidays or something like that, uh, that's more than just that 
performance anxiety. So I might go in that case, if it's something they don't need all the time, I might, I would probably do a benzodiazepine as needed. Mm. Would you leave us a uh, simple text untreated? You can, for sure. Do yeah. you? <laughs> if they're not bothering the patient. Okay, all right. And then what is the role of uh, CBT and how effective it is uh, in your own personal experiences? Cognitive behavioral therapy. I think it probably is, a, most of us see adults. Um, we see the refractory cases mm. um, who either didn't get CBIT because it wasn't as well known, but I've had difficulty finding um, practitioners who will do, treat adults with CBIT um, and have been told because it's so ingrained, um, it's a lot more difficult to change that yeah. with the behavioral therapies. So and also, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I, it's it's kind of a tool, and I think that the, yeah, one is kind of how long they've had the tic disorder, and two is how motivated they are to do it themselves, because it's kind of like exercise. Yeah, you can give somebody a pres prescription for a gym, but are they going to go there and do the exercise? So it's giving them the tool, mm -hmm. whether or not they, but they have to, they're going to get out of it what they put into it. So it depends on the person, too. Okay. And... Um it says that um, the one question from Dr. Junaid is that neuroleptics are very effective in controlling ticks, but they have side effects. So how often do you prefer the non-neuroleptic treatments like clonidine or neuroleptics as first line? And how effective are those other options, the non-neuroleptic options? In someone who has only ticks, who doesn't have other behavior or psychiatric comorbidities, I usually do not go straight to neuroleptics. Um, I will start with, uh, kind of depending on the patient, maybe clonidine, or also just kind of because of the way I, I trained, I use benzodiazepines a lot. So mm -hmm. um, clonazepam is often mm -hmm. my first choice. Dr. B. Oh, I don't see a, a whole lot of people with ticks in my practice, so I'll just defer to Amy and other people. Okay. So, um, uh, one other question is that, so coming to the behavioral question then, ticks are associated with other behavior and mood disorders, ACD, OCD, ADHD, and just self-injurious other behaviors. So how often would you prefer to treat the mood disorders first rather than treating the ticks or treat the ticks first and the mood disorders later? Or? Well, it's depending on what's most impacting the person's life. If, uh -huh. they're, if they're a kid and they're not interacting well in school because they're having lots of ADHD, behaviors and acting out, then that's definitely what needs to be addressed. Um, and it may be that the ticks are the least on the list of things that need to be addressed and that the behaviors and the ADHD is what needs to be. Um. So you know, in the antipsychotics, we're seeing a lot of role or benefit of the typical antipsychotics, Risperdon, Haliburdol, Pimosai, Fulpenazine. How about the atypical antipsychotics? Have you had seen or read uh, success with Seroquel, with um, Abilify, or the newer atypical antipsychotics? I don't think I... Uh, I have personally I, never used them, and I don't think of any literature or specific yeah. study on them. I mean, because we I think of think um, wanting to block the dopamine. dopamine yeah. So I don't think Seroquel would be a very, very good yeah, choice. I wouldn't try Seroquel. I think that or Tourette's is kind of an increased dopamine mm. thing, um, disorder. I don't think Abilify would be like my first choice, but if somebody was already on it, I might just work with increasing that dose. 
potentially? I don't know of any big studies that are well controlled, but in the individual case, I agree it might be something that you could keep on treating with as long as there's no side effects, because there is going to be a placebo effect with some of these. So one of the questions asked, and which I've been uh, challenging one of my own cases, is that uh, you know ADHD has a common association with Tourette syndrome, and CNS stimulants are suspected to worsen tics. So would you still use methylphenidate or other CNS stimulants in a Tourette syndrome with ADHD? This is from Dr. Janae Damon. You can always try it, and if it makes yeah. the tics worse. <laughs> but, but tics also change. So exactly. It's hard to... Yeah, I, I think um, my impression now is that uh, mood disorders, when present in tick, uh, Tourette syndrome, typically outweigh, far outweigh the disability than just from the ticks. Actually, most people don't need a lot of treatment for ticks, and I suspect a lot of complicated ticks that I see for treatment are actually tardive ticks and not actually the original ticks. And um, so I would agree that the mood treatment, like st stimulants for ADHD, will take precedence over any concern for worsening of ticks or something like that. Most patients actually not bothered that much by the ticks. Mm -hmm. No, many don't seek treatment. Very good. So, uh, in related to prognosis, then Dr. Sohebano is asking that does the duration of illness correlate with the disease outcome? So, for example. In an adult person who has been a sufferer of ticks for 20 years, uh, but is coming to for medical help for the first time, is his prognosis worse than someone like a child who's having ticks for a year or two and is now coming on for treatment right away? I think it depends on what you consider um, for their prognosis, for one thing. So if a, if a child is coming after one year, it might be because their symptoms are more severe. Mm. Um, so there are a lot of things that, that go into to consideration of that beyond just how long they've been present. Good, but you know, I think one point here is that we know that there is uh, growing out of ticks with age, the ticks go down, but I think uh, if you keep growing older and you still have ticks, your chance of continuing to have ticks are higher. Correct. So kids have a far more higher chance of growing out of their ticks by the time they turn 20, 21. But adults who still have it are likely never going to grow out of it. They will always have the tick disorder. So, you know, you can be more aggressive in treating the adult tick. Uh, while in a child, you may want to say, maybe let's leave it alone. It will go away unless we create more ticks from treatment. But being on treatment versus not being on treatment wouldn't um, change. Well, some happen. some treatments, you know, like Risperdal and all that, may actually can cause tardive phenomena, yeah. which may never go away, mm -hmm. you know, in, in like other tardive dyskinesia. Talking about prognosis, I have this one interesting slide here. This is a, a, a doctor from uh, work in uh, pediatrics, Dr. Lechman, and it is a stick severity through the age. So you have zero, five years, 10 years, 15 years, and you have the relative tick severity on the ARRTS scale. And it seems like the tick's severity peaks around age 10 and starts going away around age 15. And if you plot this extra, the age 20, tw between 20 to 25 will be where most of the ticks would go away uh, completely. Very good. I think uh, we'll stop here, and that was all the questions I had. Thank you. It's remarkable how fascinating the world of movement disorders is, and just to look at one facet of it can mesmerize you. I hope you're as thrilled as I am about today's episode. Your feedbacks and suggestions are highly appreciated, so write to us 
at unmc.mdpodcast at gmail.com and follow me on Twitter at danishbahati underscore ND. That is at D-A-N-I-S-H-B-H-A-T-T-I underscore M-D. Hope to see you next time. Ciao, ciao.